0: Chapters fourteen and fifteen of The Barnabys in America, by Francis Milton Trollope. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter fourteen. Bribery, SKILLFULLY employed, produces great results. The happiness of being reunited to what we love. Major Allen Barnaby very nearly quarrels with his lady, but her admirable judgment and sweetness restore her good humour. "'Those among my readers who have studied the character of Mrs. Allen Barnaby with the attention it deserves, will easily believe that she lost no time in setting about the business that must of necessity precede her keeping her promise to Mrs. Beauchamp.' The absence of the major at this moment, and indeed that of his son-in-law, too, was exceedingly provoking. They were both tall, strong men, and she knew pretty well that it was not very likely either of them would venture to refuse their assistance to her, had they been within reach of her commands.' but of their whereabouts she knew nothing. And the job, as she told herself, must be set about instantly. But Mrs. Allen Barnaby had great ability which never showed itself to greater advantage than when she was called upon by the exigencies of the moment to put herself and everybody else that she could influence into a bustle. For one moment, and no more, she paused to think how she should begin, and then rang the bell sharply. Cleopatra answered it instantly, with the usual negro grin that seems ever to promise poor wretches' willing obedience. Mrs. Allen Barnaby stood ready with a little silver coin, commonly called in those regions, a FIP in her hand. "'I have got a rather tough job to get through, my girl,' said she, "'and if you will set to and help me, I'll give you this.' "'Money is, perhaps, of all sources of earthly joy, what a slave loves the best, and, though a negro eye does not sparkle, those of Cleopatra gleamed forth a look of great delight, and extending her strangely white palm, so different in hue from the rest of her skin, she said, "'Please, missus, I's ready to do everything.' "'That is more than I want, Cleopatra,' said the dignified lady, with a very condescending smile. "'All I want is that you should go into that outhouse at the back of the yard, you know, behind the kitchen.' "'where all our luggage was put that came from the custom-house, "'and get some of the other blacks to help you to bring up into this room "'all the hampers you can find there. Do you understand?' "'Is all the nigger blacks to share dis, share and share alike, ma'am?' "'demanded the disappointed Cleopatra, holding out her fip to the lady. "'No, Cleopatra, no, that is for yourself alone. "'Put it in your pocket and say nothing about it to anybody.' When all the hampers are brought into this room, and all the deal-boxes, and the great earthenware crate into the room of my daughter, Madame Tornarino, I will give a levy to be divided among the people that help you. If I do it all my own self, will Mrs. give me the levy? asked Cleopatra, very coaxingly. I will give the levy whenever the things are all brought up, replied Mrs. Allen Barnaby, but I tell you, Cleopatra, that you can't do it by yourself. It is perfectly impossible." Cleopatra answered nothing but grinned and departed. During her absence, Mrs. Allen Barnaby arranged her room in the best manner she could devise for the reception of the ponderous baggage she expected, and this done, she sought and found her daughter, and the two Miss Perkinses, whom she informed of what was going on, and then requested that they would all come into her room to assist her. "'I'll be hanged if I do, though,' replied Madame Tornarino. "'And while I'm slaving for you, mamma, I wonder who's to unpack my own things?' "'I was just talking to Matilda about them when you came in, wasn't I, Matilda?' she added, addressing her friend with a wink, which demanded an affirmative. "'I'll tell you what we'll do, Mamma, and that will be all fair and no tyranny, which nobody you know can abide in this free country, which is news that I have just learned from Mrs. Grimes. "'I'll tell you what we'll do. You shall take Matilda, and I'll take Louisa, because I like her best for this sort of thing, and then we can both set to work fair and above board.' The two sisters eagerly proclaimed themselves perfectly ready to perform everything that was required of them, and Mrs. Allen Barnaby, finding she could do no better, submitted to the arrangement. Whereupon the party, who were during the discussion assembled in the apartment of Madame Tornarino, divided; two ladies remaining where they were, while the other two proceeded across a wide corridor to the domain of Mrs. Allen Barnaby. But, just as Miss Matilda and her respected friend reached the top of the stairs, which they passed in their way to its entrance, they were greeted by the sight of a huge hamper that seemed making its own way up the staircase. The figure of Cleopatra was, in fact, totally hid by the wide burden she had deposited on her head, but the next moment made it visible as, without looking to the right or to the left, the steadily balanced black machine passed on with quite as little attention to what it meant as a steam-engine. The two ladies followed, Miss Matilda wondering, for she knew not of the hamper scheme, and Mrs. Allen Barnaby delighted. Ever since her arrival she had endured a sort of undefined anxiety about the time and manner of her reunion with the treasures which that hamper and its fellows contained. She knew indeed, or at any rate she believed, that those treasures were safe, nay, that they were as it might be said near her. But there was something so unusual, so impracticable in the nature of their envelopments, that difficulty, uncertainty, and opposition seemed to overhang her tangible possession of them. Nothing, in fact, short of the absolute necessity produced by Mrs. Beauchamp's request could have given her courage to issue the command she had pronounced to Cleopatra, and joyful was she, oh, very joyful, when she perceived one division of her unwieldy armament thus far advanced on its march towards her own quarters. What then were her emotions on entering her room to see all her eight hampers spreading themselves far and wide before her eyes, and the well-pleased Cleopatra grinning in the midst of them? She seized upon Matilda's arm and grasped it fondly. "'Isn't that a comfort, Matilda?' she exclaimed. "'I have hardly ever said a word about it even to the Major, but I declare to you upon my honor and life, Matilda, that I always felt as if I never should get them all together again.' Miss Matilda stared with the most unaffected astonishment at the display which so enchanted her friend. "'Hampers!' she exclaimed in an accent which expressed, better than any words could have done, how perfectly unintelligible their appearance was to her. "'Yes, my dear, hampers,' returned their happy owner, laughing heartily. "'Do you think I have brought over a stock of wine in them, Matilda?' Then, turning to the negress, while she honorably drew forth the promised levy, value eleven pence, she said— "'And where are the people who have helped you to bring all these up, Cleopatra?' "'The people is me own self, missus,' replied the girl, holding out her hand for the well-deserved gratuity. "'Well, to be sure you are a strong girl. I didn't quite intend to be giving three fifths at a time to any nigger, but there you shall have it as you have done the job so quickly. But remember, all Madame Tornarino's things are to be brought up, too. However,' I can tell you for your comfort that there is not one half so many as mine. I'm sure I don't know how it is, Matilda. I have always dressed Patty uncommonly elegant, as you well know, and I should not say I had ever begrudged her anything, should you? And yet, somehow or other, it always happens that I get quantities more things for myself. That does look a monstrous sight of dresses, doesn't it, Matilda?' "'Dresses!' exclaimed the still-mystified Matilda." "'Do all those wine-hampers contain dresses, Mrs. O., Mrs. Allen Barnaby?' "'You shall see, my dear,' was the reply. "'Just hand me over that razor of the Major's, will you, Matilda?' "'Now, then, which shall we begin with?' "'Let me see if I can remember anything about it. "'My court-dress is in the biggest of all. "'That's it, isn't it? "'Let us begin with that.' "'The Major's razor was sharp and true.' The stout whipcord snapped before it again, again, and again, till the top was fairly disengaged on all sides and fell creaking to the ground. Mrs. Allen Barnaby hastily snatched away the linen wrappers which still intervened between her and her court dress, and then stood gazing upon it as it lay richly heaped in all its splendor, with an intensity of pleasurable emotion to which the pencil could do better justice than the pen. Alas! The poor Matilda! How stood she the while? all the finery she had in the world had crossed the ocean in one trunk two band-boxes and a bag and all the consolation which the unpacking handling and setting it in order could convey to her spirit had been already enjoyed at that moment perhaps she did envy mrs allen barnaby notwithstanding her large waist and her gray hairs but a little reflection caused her to turn her eyes towards the looking-glass, whence the youthful contour of her figure greeted her so cheeringly that her spirits revived, and she set about the business she was summoned to perform almost without breathing a sigh, though she had to hand out from this and the seven following hampers not less than thirty-two dresses, three cloaks, five shawls, nine scarfs, sixteen fichus, and twenty-eight embroidered collars. Nevertheless, the operation was certainly in some degree a painful one, Yet it was soothed by the delightful consciousness that not one of all the things she saw and handled but would look five thousand times better upon her than upon its owner. And thus passed the hours till the first dinner-bell gave notice that it was time to dress. Miss Matilda heard it with joy and gladness, Mrs. Allen Barnaby with dismay. She had not found lodging-room, notwithstanding Mrs. Carmichael's very handsome assignment of drawers for one half of her belongings, and now actually wrung her hands almost in despair as she exclaimed, Oh, Matilda, Matilda, what am I to do with my three velvets? We must think of that another time, my dear Mrs. O. Allen Barnaby, replied the young lady, giving notice that it was her decided intention to depart by walking straight towards the door and instantly opening it. I have got something very particular to do to the cap I am going to wear at dinner to-day, she said, and I can't stay a minute longer. Before she could be answered, she was gone, and the perplexed Mrs. Allen Barnaby looked round her with the mixed feeling of enjoyment and distress so frequently produced by the Embarras des Richesses. At this moment her husband entered for the purpose of preparing himself for dinner, and great was his astonishment at the spectacle that greeted him. The eight huge hampers, though emptied of their contents, occupied not the less space on that account, but so choked up the room with their bulk that it seemed nearly impossible to get across it. "'What on earth are you about, wife?' he exclaimed, and not perhaps in the gentlest of accents. "'What is the good of dragging out all this trumpery if we are to start away up the Mississippi in a week or so? Is it for the pleasure of looking at it all?' "'Upon my soul I did not think you were such a fool.' Strong, in conscious innocence, my admirable heroine lost not her temper, but explained to him, as he performed his ablutions, after having scrambled over the obstacles which impeded his approach to the washing-stand, how absolutely necessary it was that she should comply with the marked request of Mrs. Beauchamp, and show that she had some dresses fit for a Christian to wear. "'It is quite plain to me, Donny," she continued, soothingly handing him his rose-colored satin cravat, perfectly plain and clear that Mrs. Beauchamp, who is evidently a remarkably sensible woman, does not choose to commit herself by introducing strangers of whom she knows no more than the child unborn to all the best families of New Orleans. Now she knows, as well as I do, that dress speaks for itself, and though she did it in a very genteel, ladylike way, I don't greatly doubt, I promise you, that if I had made any shuffling excuses about not liking to unpack my things, we should presently have found her as shy as you please about introducing us. "'but everything will go right now, depend upon it. "'Just ask yourself if anybody in their senses "'could look upon such dresses as these "'and feel any doubt of the high respectability "'of the person to whom they belong. "'Just ask yourself, Major.' "'To be sure there is something in that,' "'replied the reasonable husband. "'But how in the world, my dear, "'did you contrive to collect such an immense quantity "'of rich, expensive-looking dresses? "'Are they all paid for, my Barnaby?' "'My dear Major, I always consider that to be a question between myself and my conscience, with which nobody, not even you, my dear, has any right to meddle. "'I know my own heart, Donny, and when I feel that it is for the advantage of my husband and child to do a thing, I do it, without stopping to consider what anybody else may think of it. "'If everybody did the same, Major Allen Barnaby, you may depend upon it the world would be a deal better than it is.' But I am sorry to say that duty is often and often put out of sight, and that, too, by people who fancy they are mighty good. I thank heaven that I know what's right better than that comes to, and it is not a little that will stop me, nor ever did, when I feel that I am doing my duty to my family. You are a charming woman, my dear, returned the Major with a very gallant air, and, as I have often told you before, were certainly made on purpose for me. But hark! there goes that gong of a dinner-bell— Come along, my dear. I suppose I must sit by Mrs. Beauchamp again today, as I have begun to do it, though I have no particular object in it now. Don't say so, my dear Donny," replied his lady, looking at him rather reproachfully. Remember that as a husband and a father you have your duties to perform, as well as myself. You have still a great deal to do, my dear. As yet you have only made her understand that I am a woman of genius and a writer greatly approved in my own country." "'And you should go on now to dwell upon our position in fashionable society and among people of rank.' "'Why, my dear,' replied the Major, giving a last brush to his whiskers, "'they one and all of them hate people of rank. They say so every moment almost.' Mrs. Allen Barnaby drew on her black silk mittens, smiled, and nodded her head. "'Major,' said she, while her eyes assumed an exceedingly clever expression, "'Major, don't be affronted.' But you don't see so far into a stone wall as I do. Don't I, my dear? Why, how far do you see? Just far enough to convince me that they just dote upon titles and rank as much as ever I did, when I used to toady that horrid old cat, Lady Susan, and that's saying a good deal. Yes, so it is, my dear, replied her husband, but if you say as much in your book, I don't think it will answer. No more do I, my dear, she rejoined. "'But come along, Donny. come to dinner. Don't be afraid. You may trust me.'" Chapter 15 Various sentiments progress between the dramatis personae. Powerful effect of drapery in a picture. Mrs. Colonel Beauchamp enlightens the mind of her new friend on the subject of Negro slavery. Annie Beauchamp's affection for Miss Louisa Perkins increases, which appears to disgust Mr. Egerton exceedingly. The dinner of this day passed very much as the others had done. Mrs. Carmichael wheezed and ate and hoped the gentlemen and ladies found the canvas backs and hominy good, and then wheezed again. Major Allen Barnaby did his very best to confirm all Mrs. Beauchamp's favorable impressions respecting the excellent standing of himself and his family. His lady sat, dispensing smiles around, the very picture of admiring observation and traveling intelligence. Miss Louisa Perkins unexpectedly found Annie Beauchamp seated next to her, and therefore felt herself considerably nearer being comfortable than at any moment since she first breathed the air of the United States, for she heard herself repeatedly spoken to, and that with the most engaging kindness and good nature. Miss Matilda believed herself to be looking much better than usual, having very successfully altered her blonde and amber cap, and got her hair to curl and hang beautifully. Patty pinched her husband's elbow and laughed loud with delight when he turned suddenly round to see what was the matter. Mr. Egerton talked a good deal to Miss Beauchamp and flattered himself that he had made her exceedingly angry and The rest of the good company went on very much as usual. But on the following morning, several important circumstances occurred, tending greatly to change the position of our travellers and to advance each and every of them in the direction they wished to pursue. Before leaving the room where the boarders breakfasted, Mrs. Allen Barnaby made her way to the side of Mrs. Beauchamp, and, lowering her voice to a confidential tone, said, "'Whenever you like to come to my room, my dear madam, I shall be ready to see you. I have now got a few of the dresses unpacked, about which I desire to consult you.' This was enough to secure the immediate attendance of the lady whose good opinion she wished to propitiate, and who had, indeed, feeling stronger than mere curiosity to make her accept the invitation.' Never, perhaps, had Mrs. Allen Barnaby displayed more acuteness than when she guessed that Mrs. Beauchamp was anxious to ascertain the style of her wardrobe before she ventured upon introducing her and her family to any persons of Louisianian importance. This was precisely the fact. Not that Mrs. Beauchamp entertained the slightest doubt of Mrs. Allen Barnaby's being a person of great talent-of that she felt sufficiently assured by the manner in which she admired everything she saw; But, as it appeared that the party had omitted to bring letters of introduction to New Orleans, which the Major accounted for by saying that their original intention had been to sail to New York, she confessed to her husband that she knew no other safe and sure criterion, excepting dress, whereby she could sufficiently ascertain their standing, to justify her introducing them to her tip-top friends. And, to confess the truth, the note which was to secure the strangers an invitation had yet to be written, Mrs. Allen Barnaby found means to watch, with a good deal of tact, and without at all betraying her deep interest in the matter, the sort and degree of effect produced by the display of her rich suits upon her American friend, nor had she any reason to feel disappointed at the result of the experiment. Mrs. Beauchamp, indeed, said little, much less than was usual with her on most occasions. But she looked, she touched, she meditated, and she reasoned. The two ladies moved gently about, from chair to chair, from the bed to the sofa, and from the sofa to the bed, without any of the bustling noisy discussion which such an examination generally produces between female friends. Indeed, very little was said by either of them. Mrs. Beauchamp understood good manners a great deal too well to give utterance to the increased and still increasing esteem to which the velvet, satin, and lace displayed before her gave birth while Mrs. Allen Barnaby felt too much alive to the importance of that esteem, to interfere with the mental process, which she clearly saw was going on, to augment it. The first words, however, or nearly so, which were spoken while this examination lasted, were uttered by the owner of the articles, which pleaded thus trumpet-mouthed for her gentility. Mrs. Allen Barnaby said at length, but in an accent very nearly of indifference, You must not forget, you know, my dear Mrs. Beauchamp, that you promised to tell me whether the style of any of these dresses would be fit for the society to which you have so kindly offered to present me. No, indeed, my dear ma'am, returned Mrs. Beauchamp, I am not going to do any such thing, I assure you, and I am happy to say that I don't see any one thing among all these handsome articles which you might not put on with the very greatest propriety when visiting any of the great families here.' When you have been a little longer in the country, my dear Mrs. Allen Barnaby, you will find out, I am sure, for you are a great deal too smart and observing to miss seeing it, that this southern part of the Union enjoys a much higher class of society than those who have been ill-advised enough to make themselves free states.' They grovel, as we all say, in the very outskirts of civilization, and have just missed the only way to make a republic in any degree elegant and respectable, and the cause is plain to those who don't shut their eyes on purpose because they won't see. For it's easy enough to guess that no white free-born Americans, whether men, women, or children, will choose to make household drudges of themselves and work for wages— It follows in course, then, you see, that we must either scrub and rub and toil and sweat for ourselves, like so many downright savages, or else that we must make use of the creatures that we have luckily got hold of, that are neither white nor free-born, and make them do what it is quite positively necessary that ladies and gentlemen must have done for them. While these words were spoken, Mrs. Allen Barnaby stood with her hands clasped together, and her eyes fixed on the speaker, with the air of one who is listening to the most important information that one human being can bestow upon another. "'Every word you utter, my dear madam,' she said, convinces me that Providence has thrown me in your way in order to prevent my putting forth to the world with the authority of my name.' which truth at this moment obliges me to confess is not inconsiderable, any of those false views on the subject of Negro slavery, which, I blush to say, are too freely propagated in Europe. I see at once the full force of your argument, and you will do me a great favor if you will just sit down here for a moment while I make a memorandum of your observation. Never mind that crimson velvet dress, my dear Mrs. Beauchamp. It was made at Paris last year.' "'but you know the great misfortune of velvets is "'that they are eternal.' "'My!' exclaimed Mrs. Beauchamp, "'following with her eyes the splendid robe with its gold stomacher "'as it was thrown carelessly aside in order to give her a chair. "'I expect it looks as if it was made yesterday. "'I do wish, Mrs. Allen Barnaby, "'that if we go all together to-night to Judge Johnson's, "'you would just wear that gown.' It is first-rate elegant, and I expect there's nobody so stupid as not to see that. And don't you mind its being hot weather, Mrs. Allen Barnaby? We can learn you to fix the things under, so that you will hardly feel the difference. Most assuredly I will wear that dress if you approve of it, my dear Mrs. Beauchamp, was the obliging reply, but, spoken with a sort of dignified indifference which a queen might have shown upon a similar occasion— Mrs. Allen Barnaby now took her new notebook and pencil out of her table drawer, and, sitting down before it, said in a tone which formed a charming contrast to that in which she had spoken of her dress, "'May I ask you, my dearest madam, to repeat to me a few words of what you were saying just now? This will amply suffice to recall the general bearing of your admirable and unanswerable argument.' I expect that what I was saying was about the ridiculous impossibility of Republican gentlemen and ladies doing for themselves without the assistance of niggers. And what I think is the best argument of all, Mrs. Allen Barnaby, is just this. I want the abolitionists to be pleased to tell us which they calculate is the greatest sin— THE LETTING BLACK HEATHEN NIGGER CREATURES WHAT GROWS WILD IN THEIR OWN WOODS FOR ALL THE WORLD LIKE SO MANY PAINTERS AND polecats, cats I WANT TO KNOW, I SAY, WHETHER IT'S WICKEDER TO LET THEM DO THE WORK OF THE UNION, OR TO PUT IT UPON THE GENTLEMEN AND LADIES OF THE REPUBLIC TO DO IT FOR THEMSELVES, AND THEM THE VERY PEOPLE THAT THE IMMORTAL WASHINGTON FOUGHT FOR, THE VERY PEOPLE WHO GOT DONE FINISHED THE GLORIOUS FOURTH OF JULY WORK, and that now stands in the face of all Europeans as the pattern people of the world? Which of the two is it that ought to do the dirty work? Is it the heroes of the stars and the stripes, or is it the nigger slaves what belongs to them? Mrs. Beauchamp said all this slowly and deliberately, and the more so as she observed that her friend was earnestly engaged the while in writing. As soon as the sentence had reached its conclusion, Mrs. Allen Barnaby raised her eyes, fixed them solemnly on the face of her eloquent and animated companion, and having gazed at her for a moment, she exclaimed, "'I never did, no, never in my whole life, hear anything put so clear and convincing as that. Why, anybody that doesn't see the truth of it must be as stupid as the dirt under their feet.' "'No, no, it is not so much stupidity, my dear Mrs. Allen Barnaby,' "'replied the patriotic lady. "'As downright good for nothing wickedness. "'They do all see it. "'They must see it. "'They must know that a white man, "'a white American Republican, "'is better than a nasty, filthy black nigger slave. "'But that's the shocking part of the business, my dear lady. "'They see it, and yet they won't say so "'on account of their poisonous party spirit. "'And it is just that,' WHICH THREATENS THE SAFETY OF THE FINEST PART OF THE UNION, AND THE ONLY PART SUFFICIENTLY ADVANCED IN THE ELEGANCES OF CIVILIZATION TO GET THEMSELVES LOOKED UP TO BY EUROPEANS. THIS WAS SAID WITH SO MUCH VEHEMENCE, SO MUCH BITTERNESS, AND SUCH HEIGHTENED COLOR, THAT THE ACUTE MRS. ALLEN BARNABY SAW AT ONCE HOW VERY NEAR AND HOW VERY IMPORTANT A SUBJECT THEY WERE DISCUSSING, AND SHE QUIETLY DETERMINED TO ACT ACCORDINGLY. She raised her hand to her forehead, which she pressed forcibly as if to still its painful throbbings. She sighed, then sat motionless a while, then sighed again, and at length, in a voice as deep and solemn as that of Mrs. Siddons herself, she said, "'I feel that this is important. This awfully important subject excites my mind too strongly. It will require many solitary hours of deep thoughtfulness to represent it to the world in the light in which it ought to be viewed. I see all.' "'All now, as clearly as the sun at noon to-day, and it shall not be my fault if Europe does not see it too. Then you see it as I do, my excellent, clear-headed Mrs. Allen Barnaby. "'You range yourself on the side of the persecuted slaveholders,' exclaimed Mrs. Beauchamp. "'I do, indeed,' replied the authoress, in a tone of the most dignified decision." "'Then, if I don't prove myself worthy of such a friend, "'may I never be waited upon by a slave again,' "'returned Mrs. Beauchamp, suddenly rising. "'And now, Mrs. Allen Barnaby, I must leave you, "'for I have many things to do. "'I hope we shall enjoy our party to-night. "'I am told it is to be a very gay one.' "'You are aware, my dear madam?' "'said our traveller, remembering her husband's hint.' that we English ladies never pay visits unaccompanied by our husbands. And it does you honour, ma'am, great honour. The ladies of the Union are first-rate particular in that line themselves. In course, my friends will expect the company of the major, and not only that, I can tell you. The whole party of a lady of your views will be welcome, go where you will, in this part of the country, and that if you made up altogether half a score instead of half a dozen. "'You are exceedingly kind and polite,' replied Mrs. Allen Barnaby, feeling, to her very fingers' ends, the strength of her present position, and only hesitating in her acceptance of this wholesale hospitality, from thinking it possible that she might turn the glowing sentiment of gratitude she had excited, more exclusively to her own profit. Exceedingly obliging, indeed! But I do not think there is any necessity to trouble you with such a very large party.' Our good friends, the Perkinses, are certainly the best creatures in the world, and I'm only too happy to have them with me, in attendance upon me, I might in fact say, but there is no occasion whatever to ask for their being invited on the present occasion. It may be a check, perhaps, on future hospitality. "'You are very considerate and thoughtful, my dear ma'am,' replied Mrs. Beauchamp, "'and perhaps it may be as well.' At this moment Madame Tornarino entered her mother's apartment, and, asking in her usual unembarrassed manner what they were talking about, was immediately made acquainted with the point they were discussing. "'How can you be so abominably ill-natured, mamma? said the bride with some vehemence, "'when you know Matilda is my particular friend. Pray, ma'am, get her invited if you can, for I shall have no fun if she doesn't go. As to Louisa, indeed, she may just as well stay at home, for she is too dull for anything.' Mrs. Beauchamp declared Madame Tornorino was the liveliest young lady she had ever seen, but added that she could not stay another minute to listen to her, as she had forgotten to explain properly to her friend Mrs. Judge Johnson about who she was to have the happiness of seeing, and she must write to her again directly. And she did write to her concerning the large party of additional guests whom she requested her to invite, but not again inasmuch as she had never before written a word upon the subject. "'having waited, as before stated, for some satisfactory proof of the Allen barnaby race "'being worthy of the promised honour. "'But on this point assurance had indeed become doubly sure. "'Nobody who knew anything of the higher classes in any country could doubt for a moment,' "'as she told Mrs. Judge Johnson, "'that such dresses must belong to a real lady, but what?' she added was that, compared to the high-minded feelings and the extraordinary ability she had shown upon the subject so near to all their hearts. In short, she explained her motives so clearly and expressed them so well, that, as quickly as the black messenger could go and return, Mrs. Beauchamp was in possession of a note that authorized her to bring with her the five friends she had named. "'The five friends?' said Annie when her mother communicated the note to her. "'Yes, all you know except that poor melancholy-looking one "'that does not seem as if she could take pleasure in anything.' "'The eldest of the two Miss Perkinses, you mean?' said Annie. "'Yes, my dear.' "'Well then, Mamma, I shall stay at home with her,' said the young lady with all the pertinacity of a spoiled child. "'You stay at home, Annie. "'My daughter, you must be out of your wits to say so. "'I should like to know what father would say to that.' But the young lady persisted, and as generally happens in such cases, the mamma gave way. Miss Louisa was taught to consider herself invited, and Mrs. Beauchamp made up her mind to smuggle her in among the rest, or if challenged as to their numbers, to declare that it was a blunder of her foolish annies. It so chanced that this little debate between Mrs. Beauchamp and her daughter took place in the great saloon, while some few of the boarders were waiting there in expectation of the dinner-bell, and among them was Mr. Frederick Egerton. This young man had been vacillating a little respecting his immediate departure from New Orleans. It had occurred to him that he had not yet seen enough of the singular forest around it, with its rich palmetto shrubs and its heavy pendant moss, and he had pretty well made up his mind to stay another week. He was one of those who had been honored by a verbal invitation from the Honorable Judge Johnson himself for the party of the evening, but he had prudently given an uncertain answer and in truth had decided upon avoiding so warm a ceremony. "'But his curiosity was now piqued to know "'why that little obstinate, thoroughbred American girl "'insisted so rudely and so vehemently "'upon being accompanied by that deplorable-looking Miss Perkins. "'She has got some horribly vulgar American joke in her head, "'I am quite sure of it,' he muttered to himself. "'And if I am broiled for it, I will certainly go "'in order to find out what it is. "'How I do detest American jokes!' End of chapters 14 and 15